Hey, buddies. Welcome once again to the Frank Observer Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking group headed by yours truly. And, uh, let's see, at this point, I have um, got uh, Lady Hyde, of course, in streaming services. Uh, so check that out on Tubi and uh, Momitu and uh, maybe Amazon Prime, hopefully soon. And a few other streaming channels that I'm just waiting for them to start airing it. Uh, and then we are also adding Emmanuel and Sin City to uh, streaming services soon. So be on the lookout for that. Usually it takes about uh, two, three months or so to get that up running before they accept it and all the paperwork and all that stuff. So, yeah, so got all that coming up and uh, currently in production on She Knows Ferratu and writing some other films and other stuff. So be on the lookout for all that from Desperate Visions. And you can always check that out uh, on Facebook and Instagram and all that. And while I'm doing this plug, let me just get these out of the way. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook under uh, the Franco Observer Podcast. Uh, if you dig the show, please tell others about it. Uh, we are on all major streaming platforms now. Um, Apple Podcast and uh, Google Podcast and Stitcher and all the other big ones. Um there's a sponsor page. If you'd like to podcast and you ever want to donate or sponsor, please feel free and look onto that on the uh, Red Circle main page. Uh, what else? I'm trying to do all this from memory here. Um, download, subscribe, of course. Subscribe to the show. Uh, download them if you care to. And, uh, yeah, got all that out of the way. So I'm sure I'm missing one or two, but it's no big deal. You know, we've done this many episodes now, 129. I think you know the routine and my usual spiel so all right now on to episode 129 film 134 Uego Suco in Casablanca foul play in Casablanca uh this is a really cool film I watched it already um before I recorded this portion I had the review uh which will bring up that part my special guest reviewer this week is a returning reviewer I think this is like his third third or fourth episode. Uh, it's my friend from many years, Mr. Jeff Grolbert. He's a uh, cartoon zine um, illustrator and uh, author and a uh, very talented dude. He's been a good illustrator for as long as I've known him, so very hardworking man. So, um, yeah, him and I sat down and watched this film and uh, both really liked it. It's It was a good, a good film made in a cool part of Franco's life, and I like how the... Uh, Reality of life sometimes filters into your work. So, all right, on we go. This is uh, 1984 now, the year we are in of Franco's uh, filmmaking. So, this is uh, Spain, of course, 1984. The alternative title, um, let's see here, C'est les Jeux et Casablanca, the French title. Um, this is a uh, Manicoa Films. This, that's just Franco's production company, his own deal. So, like, that's his Death Provisions uh, out of Madrid. And theatrical distributor, uh, Cinema International Corporation, CIC. All right, timeline shooting date on this is circa January 1984. Uh, the legal number he got on it, March 22nd of 84. And date of approval, October 5th of 1984. Played Seville, February 14th, Valentine's Day. Interesting day. On 1985, and then Barcelona, uh, June 17th of 1985. 
theatrical running time, Spain, 102 minutes. And uh, before I go any further, of course, all information is from the book Flowers of Perversion, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, done by Stephen Thrower. And that's where we get all these uh, credits and information and all that stuff. So, all right, onward. Uh, director, uh, Jess Franco, of course. Um, screenplay, um, Santiago Mancata. Director of photography, Juan Solar Cozar. Camera operator, Angel Ordales. Production manager, Antonio Mayans as J. Mayans. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, instead of J.A., just J. Uh, assistant producer, Jose Miguel Garcia Marfa. Okay. Art director, Carlos Spitzer. Makeup, Juan Adela Moreno. Of course, that's uh, um, Antonio Mayans' wife. Uh, hair, Regina Hervis. Wardrobe, okay. Uh, assistant director, Lena Romay as Rosa Mara Amaral. Her real name. Uh, editor, Jesus Franco and Lena Romay. Music, Julian Sacristian. Published by Harmony Music. Um, let's see, Props Lab. And then uncredited film editing studio, Airfon. Uh, uncredited producer, Jess Franco. Camera operator, Jess Franco. All right, so on this one, let's see, he has less work here. He's the director, he's the producer camera operator and editor with Lena so yeah he still does four but it's definitely not writing although it's funny that things I'm sure he get a writing credit on this because of what we'll talk about all right cast uh, William Berger is magnificent in this film it's a very good performance by him uh, probably one of his best in the Franco universe I think this is like his third or fourth film for Franco uh, he plays Dean Baker uh Analia Ivars plays Julie Prentice, a.k.a. Jill Evans. Uh, Murray, Muriel Montos returns again uh, as billed as Sylvia Montez in this, and she plays Shirley Brewster. That's interesting. It should be Baker. Uh, Antonio Mayans plays Freddie Blankton. Ricardo Palacios plays Papa Yule slash Julius Brewster. <coughs> interesting. Shirley Brewster... And then, huh, I just realized this. So I wonder, Muriel Montross is billed as Shirley Brewster, and the big heavy guy is uh, billed as Julius Brewster. So I wonder if that's her father, or, huh, interesting, I never even made that connection before, I have to go back and watch that again. Uh, Juan Soler Cozar, as Juan Cozar, plays Charlie Strafford, car player in the floral shirt. Uh, Luis Barbu, one of my favorites, plays Duke Foreman, the older card player. He's the owner of the racetrack. Uh, Alfredo Kier plays Steel, card player in Striped Blazer. Angel Ordales plays Ali, a gun seller. Juana de la Moreno is the receptionist at the real Brewster offices. And Carlos Mindy plays Wendy Castling, accountant for Julius Brewster. George uh, Laverne plays Edward Baker's bookkeeper. Jose Lamas plays the bongo player for Exotic Dancer. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I did. Uh, Miguel Garcia plays the bongo player wearing a hat. And Lena Romay is in it very, very briefly as a woman having her book signed at Baker's book launch. Yeah, she's in this film for like 20 seconds. Um, I won't give the synopsis because it usually gives way too much. But uh, actually, let me, before I jump back to the book, let me read... Um, I had the DVD-R, 
which I would really hope that this comes out eventually through Severin or, you know, um, Vinegar Syndrome or any, anybody else um, that puts it out because uh, this is a really good film and it's got just a little bit of sex, um, a little bit of violence, but the story is really strong. Um, so anyway, this is a copy I got from the now closed site because uh, the owner, of course, uh, Craig, passed away. So uh, and that's the EurotrashCinema.com. They were a really cool site that had, I got a lot of Franco stuff from them um, a couple years ago. And his collection was second to none. And uh, he was part of Video Search in Miami, too, um, from before that. So it's a big, big loss for video collectors because you have somebody with amazing libraries like that. It's hard to replace. But, uh, yeah, so my version of uh, Dirty Games in Casablanca, he has instead of foul playing Casablanca. Um, and what he wrote about it, I'll, I'll review that. Um, I'll talk about that as his synopsis because it's briefer and l- different take on it. So he has um, 1985, okay, Spanish-English subs. Um, a down-on-his-luck gambler contemplates suicide after losing everything, including his wife. After several failed attempts to take his own life, he comes up with a game he can't lose. The gambler hands four people each one. The gambler hands four people each each a one ace out of the deck, and the person who ends up with the ace of hearts wins the honor of killing him. After the card sets in motion, his planned execution fate intervenes when his wife comes back to him. Will he be able to discover the person who holds the Ace of Hearts before they complete the contract? Jess Franco's Huego Suco in Casablanca is one of his most entertaining and crafted films to emerge from him in the last 33 years. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, The plot revolves around an alcoholic writer who tries to kill himself after his wife leaves him. The pacing is handled well, and the structure of the film is split between the present and a series of flashbacks. These flashback scenes are the most effective part of the film. The flashbacks are also the only part of the film where Jess Franco really shines visually. The cinematography for Wego Soko in Casablanca was handled by Juan Solar, who worked on virtually every Jess Franco film from 1980's Wicked Memoirs of Eugene up until 1987's La Chica's del Tenga. So that was his uh, synopsis of it. All right, now back to the book. Uh, production notes. Concerning the precise shooting date of this film is not as simple as it first appears. It bears a 1984 deposit legal number, but as Antonio Mayans had explained elsewhere in the book, in this book, there was often a delay of weeks or even months between the shooting of a Franco film and its submission to the Spanish registration authorities. That said, 1984 also tallies with an interview given by William Berger straight after shooting foul play in Casablanca. Berger went on to his next picture, the Duccio Tassari Western uh, Texile El Signor de G. Abisi, shot in Spain in 1984 and released to Italy in 1985. When a strike hit the production, he was able to take two days off to film material for another film, which Franco had begun immediately after foul playing Casablanca, called uh, El Sino La Veda Medias Negras. See next entry. Uh, if the currently available shooting information for the Tassari film is accurate, that puts Elisino Elevata Mas Negras in 1984 and Falpe and Casablanca ought to be 1984-2 or at the earliest December 1983. But then 
there. But then, what are we to make of the scene in Wego Suko in which Berger's character visits his bookkeeper's office, and a calendar on the date reads February 83. As the calendar out of date, the scene is shot on location, so the incidental details of the decor are real, not set dressing. One possible explanation is that the location was not currently in use, in which case the calendar maybe shows the last month anyone worked there. Otherwise, we would need the Duccio Tassari file film to have been shot in March 83, which, although not impossible, requires a greater shift with accepted information. With this in mind, it seems prudent to say with 1984. All right, review by Stephen Thrower. The downbeat meditation on midlife crisis, despair, and disappointment is one of Franco's finest films of the 1980s. Based on a screenplay by Santiago Moncada and boasting an excellent central performance from William Berger, it's an unqualified success that merges visual style, storytelling skill, and genuine emotional heft into one immaculate construction. Berger plays Dean Baker, a man once feted as the most original and sensitive writer of our century by the New York Times. Now a washed-up alcoholic whose failed emotional life and sinking prospects are so hopeless that he can't stand himself any longer. One can feel bad or sad or afraid, he says, but tiredness is the worst. You'll know you'll never get to the moon or write a good book, and that love is routine, and so you feel tired. After trying and failing twice to commit suicide, he concludes he's so great a washout as a man that he can't even finish himself off. The second of these suicide attempts takes place on a railway line and adds a far less sympathetic detail to the lead character, a grand narcissism that endangers not only his own life but others too. He parks his car in front of an oncoming train and, not satisfied with planning a major rail accident, embraces Jill, a friendly hooker, is sitting in the passenger seat and refuses to let her go. Let death surprise us in each other's arms, he implores. Bad enough that he should choose a suicide method that endangers so many other lives, but to actively grab onto a struggling woman to prevent her from scrambling clear of danger? That's true. Baker is truly contemptible in the scene. <laughs> in a development that feels like something drawn from the work of Rainier Werner Fassbinder, we're then asked to care about the man throughout the rest of the story. <laughs> that's true, I didn't think about that. Maybe that's the one part that... See, because this film, before we go any further, I really, really liked it a lot, but I don't know, it didn't hit that next level like I thought, and that, that could be a really interesting thing right there because it's hard to feel for that guy. Um, it's a high-stakes game that Franco is playing, and it depends upon the willingness of the audience to accept a deeply unsympathetic lead character. Instead of the comforts of identification, we must be happy to understand or simply observe. While the story may draw upon American film noir, it thus owes more to continental art cinema where audiences, where audience identification figures are less sacrosanct. We can feel sympathy when Baker describes his plummeting self-worth, his feelings that life has given all it has to give him and his weariness with striving even harder for less and less reward. But when self-pity turns to aggression and endangers other people, we are tempted to step away and regard him as a monster. It's maybe only because Jill herself is so peculiarly forgiving that we allow this moment on the railway tracks to pass. As the, after the failed railway suicide in a scene more pivotal than we first understand, Jill takes Baker to a cruel card game. I'm sorry, Jill takes Baker to a card game <clears throat> arranged by her pimp. Freddy, 
played by Antonio Mayans, at a club owned by the enormously obese Papa Yule. Enormously obese, isn't that like the same thing? I mean, I don't know. Um, drink follows drink, a wager follows wager, and amazingly, Baker wins $50,000. Wallowing in a boost-up cocktail of misery and euphoria, he makes a deal with the other players. He signs the Ace of Hearts and then distributes all four aces randomly among the four players. The person with the signed card wins the $50,000 on condition that they kill Baker. The next day, sobering up, he returns to the club to undo what he set in motion. Papa Yule, however, wants none of it. The game is on, and murder attempts and dead bodies pile up. Baker finds his appetite for life back with a vengeance. Such is the meat of the plot, and the first thing to note is that it's strikingly different in texture to Franco's work so far. Essentially, a film about a man's character under extremities under extremes of existential despair. It feels like a welcome glass of ice-cold water after the woozy humidity of Franco's habitual delirium. Male character studies are simply not his stomping ground, stamping ground. The closest would be his crime thrillers of the early 60s, such as Rafifi in the City or Death Whistles of Blues. So, what possessed Franco to turn to this story? It is, after all, written by someone else. Did he thirst for a holiday from his own writing talents? Did something in the story grab him and force its way to the screen? It's interesting that this particular story should emerge in the mid-80s when Franco's career is sliding into a downturn marked by cynicism, the hardcore films, his low energy, uh, Chicas de la Labios Rojos, and Frivolity, how much for a spy. With the demise of the S certificate, Franco's beloved horror erotica was becoming commercially unviable, and European genre cinema was receding in popularity to the point where it was near impossible to sell low-budget, independently produced films abroad. Such a cocktail of disappointment, self-doubt, and commercial bad news may have led to an increased susceptibility on Franco's part, both to the filming of another writer's script and to the dark and troubled tone of the story itself. Then there was the state of play with Franco's erstwhile financial backers, Golden Films International. According to Franco and Antonio Mayans, the company began stockpiling finished films without releasing them commercially and failed to pay money owed from the earlier films. What had seemed like a perfect deal with total freedom and a regular demand for more product had turned sour, with only one more Golden Films production, Bangkok, a date with death, making it into cinemas in 1985. Franco must have been seething with anger, disappointment, and perhaps humiliation. At this point, I have to say beware. Wego, Fauplay, and Casablanca pivots on an extraordinary plot twist, very unusual for Franco, so if you'd rather not know, you may want to skip the rest of the review. Um, the film... Okay, here we go. Spoiler. Three, two... The film employs a structural device about 15 minutes from the end, which requires us to reassess everything we've seen so far. This is, in fact, a tale within a tale. The inner layer terminates with the murder of the lead character. We then pull back to the outer reality to discover that most of what we've seen so far is from Dean's forthcoming novel, which we see him reading to his wife, his agent, and assembled business partners. Each of them was represented in a story with certain details true and others invented. Baker has woven a story from the dregs of his private despair, using the machinations and petty greed of those around him. His publisher, seen earlier, unwilling to advance his writer a paltry $2,000, immediately offers to buy the book. The others are not so thrilled about the way they've been portrayed. Threats are issued, 
tempers snap, and the next round of vengeful death unfolds. It's only in retrospect, once the central twist has occurred, that certain details add up. For instance, the opening scene with Jill, in which a girl we assume is a hooker, refuses a client's money, makes sense as an idealism uh, makes sense as an idealization of a woman instead of the real thing. A real hooker would have taken the money. A woman who wasn't a hooker would have slapped the son of a bitch in the face. Likewise, Jill's unaccountable willingness and lavish affection on the man who tried to kill her in a forced suicide pact. Uh, after that night in the motel, I thought a lot about you. I always hoped we'd meet again, the real Jill says. And belatedly, we realized the scene on the railway line never happened. It was pure invention, the expression of Baker's self-loathing, which just as goes to show we could have been missing it if we bailed too early. The script even gave us a hint about what was happening when Baker tried to persuade Papa Yule to help him annul the agreement. The callous Yule replies, A curious situation. You could write a novel if you had the time. Of course, it turns out that we were that what we were seeing is in fact just that, a novel dramatized before our very eyes, making this the only example of a literary recursion in a Jess Franco film. Wego Foul Playing Casablanca is certainly a wealth of surprises. This is a sensitively directed, often beautifully filmed story based around committed and compelling performances. Everyone is in good form, although the honors must go to William Berger, who shines throughout. Antonio Mayans is excellent and deeply sinister as the shark-like Freddy. Mario Montas, the perfect choice for the wife, either mean and contemptuous or sorrowful as the story demands. Franco has evidently focused his talent to make the best of the story. The attention to detail is remarkable. For instance, when Baker opens a drawer in the office, he rarely visits the newspaper lining the drawer is in Arabic, a small detail which cements the impression of a Morocco shoot, even though filming took place in Spain. Juan Solar's lighting and Franco's camera work with its recurrent fixation on rain, sorrow, and mirrors, introspection, are matched for elegance by directorial choices such as the card game scene, in which the sound of laughter and cursing is replaced by a moody North African composition. The low budget is evident, but Franco has uses his minimalist palette adroitly to sum up his lead character's harrowing horizons. Lingering close-ups of Berger's weathered face communicate not only the emotions within the character, but also the diminished foreshadowed world in which his depression and despair have cast him. After a couple of years in which a scene's of diminishing returns was beginning to corrupt the Franco filmography, Fell Playing Casablanca reviews I'm sorry, revives your admiration and makes you wish he'd filmed other people's scripts more frequently. Alright, cast and crew. Something sometimes a cast member would forget that Franco's films were being made at a speed that didn't allow for the usual niceties, as Antonio Mayans recalls. Analia Ivers would ask for nail varnish, even in the jungle during Golden Temple Amazons. Wano would refuse, then Nolly would run off. On the side of Casablanca, in the last scene, she dies, remember? This is the shot of her at night with William Berger there and Marie Montas. Aurelia is shot, and then she falls, dying. She's laying there on the ground, and it's starting to rain a little, and Analia wanted Wana to do her makeup. Just Jesus was jumping with annoyance, saying, There is no more light. There is no more time. No, no. <clears throat> That's not a very good story. Uh, music. Uh, kicking off with a marvelous Arabic composition, Foul Playing Casablanca rings the 
changes on the soundtrack, too. Instead of the now-by-predictable patchwork of Daniel White cues, we're treated to a new sounds in keeping up with the drama. Arabic traditional music and Arabic-flavored pop music for the disco scenes intersped with a beautiful new piano melody that tangent tangentially recalls Andre Benicio's music for uh, The Mirror's Obscure, the other side of the mirror. Uh, locations. A concrete pedestrian walkway from which William Berger runs to escape from Papa Ewell's hoods is the same one seen in uh, Black Boots, Leather Whips, and The Sinister Dr. Orloff, 1982, which means at least some shooting took place in Tori Molinos. We also get another visit to the Castillo de Bilbil in Benamadena near Malaga as featured in Mil Sexos Tine Le Noche. The director declares that shooting also took place in Malela, a Spanish autonomous province on the North African coast near Morocco. All right, connections. The script by Santiago Moncada recycles much of his 1975 screenplay for Huego Sucho de Panama, directed by Tulio de Michelli. Including the major twist, the characters' names, the washed-up writer Dean, and the sequence in which the hero is beaten up by a pack of people. Uh, the story itself contains echoes of Jules Verne's Tribulations of a Christmas in China, I'm sorry, Tribulations of a Chinaman in China, in which a man bored with his wife, upon learning that his business is on the verge of collapse, pays someone else to assassinate him, but then changes his mind and most and must elude the assassin. Was filmed in '65 by Felipe de Broca, starring Jean-Paul Belmondo. Uh, Dean Baker's novellas or no, novels include uh, *Tales of an African Lobster*, um, *A Place Called Nowhere*, *Milestones*, and uh, yeah, and *Crossfaces*. Uh, when Jill introduces Dean to Papa Yule, she calls him a friend. To which Papa Yule responds, looking at Dean, "An American friend, welcome." Baker is indeed American, but the remark comes across as loaded and may be intended by Franco as a reference to The American Friend, 1977, by Vim Vinders. Yeah, American, a neo directed by Vim Vinders, about a man who uses his subterfuge to trick another into committing murders. Um, I'll skip that. Um, Franco was no stranger to recursion, a narrative structural device creating a Hall of Mirrors effect. It was a defining feature of his first film, uh, other versions. A rarity among the 1980s Manicola productions, this film was shot abroad, making it onto French video as Seul Jeu et Casablanca. So, alright, so that's quite a bit of there on this film. Um, yeah, so that's pretty good. Alright, well, um, hang out past the bumper music, and you'll hear myself and guest reviewer Jeff Goldberts. Um, thoughts and observations and uh, reflections on foul play in Casablanca when it's not just Maha. Alright, we are back on episode 129 film 134 um, foul play in Casablanca Wego Sutko in Casablanca uh, and um, 
joining me on this episode of uh, the Frank Observer Podcast. I have a returning guest, uh, fellow artist, uh, cartoonist, uh, illustrated author, Mr. Jeff. How you doing, Jeff? Hey, Jeff Grolbert. It's good to be back. Thank good, you. good, good to see you. So, um, we both watched here uh, Foul Play in Casablanca, and um, I really liked it. Um, I didn't really take a lot of notes because I was like trying to watch the movie because it's a lot of a lot of plot and a lot of uh, you got to follow everything through. Um, what what did you think about it, Jeff? Um, I enjoyed it. it, it uh, as you're saying throughout it too, it had a lot of um, Hitchcock type sort of thing going on. Yeah, uh, the there's music a lot too. more of a. Um, I almost had a Fellini eight and a half thing where it, it was. It seemed like when, with some of the backstory you're giving me about what he was going through personally. Yeah. At the time and how it was reflecting and um, it kind of almost seemed like a uh, a letter to to those that were involved with all that. Yeah, because in the book they talk about how this is right after the Golden Films period where he had basically made a bunch of films and he didn't really, a lot of them weren't released and they were just kind of shelved and so a lot of the money that he put into and his own energy and the own creativity and everything to have all these projects unfulfilled and not only not making the money off them but the creativity and all the power and everything you put into it and you know how it is, you create something and it doesn't get made or or you, or you draw something, you draw, make up something, and it doesn't get released, or you, you, people back out of your thing, or your vision doesn't get fulfilled, right. or whatever. And so, as an artist, it's like he's making the story about how basically the gold films people and all that. How he made all these films, like I said, and, and they didn't get released, and so he kind of felt screwed over in this. And a lot of this is about like, and then you talked about the Fleeney and the Woody Allen of basically how he's taking these people in his life and he's creating a story with these people and things they're doing, but he's making it into a literary version of the way he's getting screwed. And instead of saying that they're all hate him or they're all going to kill him, it's okay. Well, it's a card game and stuff, but we don't know what's reality and what's a story until it already happens. And that, that part threw me off because I didn't know it was going to be like a story that we're being told. And then it turned out to be a story and not reality, you know? Right. And it, it definitely had a more intimate feel. Like it felt like it was kind of like, like um, I was getting like an insight of his journal, or like, like well, you know, it seemed personal. Yeah, yeah, me. very, very much so. And and that's why I uh, I called a friend to do this episode with me because I didn't really want to watch it by myself because it's one of these movies that I knew was going to be good, and I wanted to have a, um, somebody that's been on the podcast before that would appreciate it because uh, I liked the idea of the story about a person who's. In the story, he's supposed to be like in his fifties, and he's a famous author, and he's an alcoholic, and and he's done all these books and and things, and he works on this board, and then basically, his his wife's getting ready to leave him. Uh, he's just become an alcoholic wreck. He's kind of stopped writing, and the job that he serves on, um, people that work under him, um, that we really don't learn until later on, people that work under him at this job are basically embezzling money and, and the profit's going to, and the business is going to go under as well. So he's kind of getting screwed by everything. So basically in a nutshell, he decides to end his life and then, uh, things change and then he decides to have a change of heart. And then, but what it is with reality, almost like that movie, the game too, that kind of came out later with Michael Douglas, oh, yeah, where, Michael, he, yeah. where you kind of don't know what's true and what's not true and what's part of the thing or what's, 
being played out or if it's part right. of the game or what you know it was just that was kind of interesting as well speaking of the game too like what was what was your take on that that whole uh card game they were playing and all the players that were yeah no that's that, some history with this that game. yeah no that scene I'd, i i had a, a point out to jeff because like, okay this is cool this is like all the the old franco all-stars yeah um, you had uh papa yule um I get the guy's name again uh, that's um um oh shit uh um let me start from the beginning here. Let's see. We have Papa Yule is um, uh, Ricardo Palacios. And he's is the, the Scarface guy? No, he's the really gigantic fat guy. Yeah. That oh, man, that was a nice little job of the hut moment. <laughs> uh, good, good, good call. I didn't think about that. Yeah, because he's in like the Moroccan uh, hut, you know, yeah. type thing. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and actually, I actually like that. It was distracting. Like, it was intentionally distracting, I think. And it was just funny how they were all doing their card thing and he's over there in the background just getting this rub down this I know and this woman's just, just rubbing his <laughs> stomach just, and he's just yeah and he's got the bad beard he's all sweaty and he's just he looks so unhealthy right just, <laughs> but but he's the main man he's Papa like, Yule yeah yeah and I'll because he was referring to himself in third person he's like Papa Yule thinks it's okay or Papa Yule th- <laughs> gives his blessing you're like it's like, like just think like Marlon Brando and the Godfather without clothes on oh yeah no I was just thinking like, more like Divine meets uh Actually, what's the guy's name in uh, Street Trash? That was that. Uh, oh, the the car shop owner, the the owner of yeah, the yard. Yeah, he he was in a couple of trauma films too. That really gigantic fat yeah. guy. Yeah, and he passed away not that long ago. Actually, he was the partner to Lloyd Kaufman, wasn't he? Like I I, I was it was I thought it was the two of them, like the really heavy set guy, and then Lloyd Kaufman. No, I think. He got I'm, eaten I'm not by sure. the escalator, I think. In yeah, like yeah, I, I, maybe. yeah, 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 no, yeah, that, yeah, that that guy. Um, but yeah, he's 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 funny. Um. But no, so you had him, and then of course you had um, William Berger in the lead, who was in uh, Love Letters of Portuguese Nun. He's in uh, The Eyes of Doctor Orloff. He's in uh, 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 Golden Temple Amazons, and he's in like three or four movies, or more than that too. He's a couple other ones. Great actor too yeah. to watch. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 really good in the lead. You're saying too, like a kind of a Richard Burton type thing going. With yeah, especially when he's younger, the little Burton. And in this though, you had mentioned Brian Cluxton. He kind of has that. Or, I mean, Brian Cranston. Yeah. Brian Cranston kind of a, a vibe to him, you know. Um, and a little bit of a, a lot of mixture of stuff. It kind of reminded me of, of, of um, Jack Lemmon a little bit, a couple times. While I was oh, watching yeah. too. Um, so, yeah, he's good. Um, Muriel Montross is good as his ex or as his wife. Um, and, of course, she's in, uh, uh, love, uh, she's in uh, the Confessional Orgies of Emmanuel. She's in Linda. She's in uh, the... Story of Oh, I think she's in that one. Yeah, she's she's in quite a bit. And then um, you have um, Antonio Mayans, of course, is Freddy, so he's in the card game. And um, you have uh, um, Luis Barbu, who's one of my favorites. Um, he plays uh, Duke Foreman. He's the older card player. He's got a really good scar on his face. And he's in um, quite a bit. He's in um, The Witches. He's in uh, Dracula, Prisoner, Frankenstein. Uh, right to Frank Stein, and, and he's in, but and actually he's in things that Sister Eyes at Orloff as well. So didn't really get any lines in it till the end. I think no, the very end he actually talks, but you only see him from behind. He's like, I mean, he probably does his lines, but they don't show him speaking. You just see his back, and then he's he has his back to the cameras. He's giving his lines. They still had to give his scar backstory though. Yeah, exactly. How <laughs> about how the jockey yeah sliced him and killed him because he, he threw a race. Um, then yeah, and then you had the other guy that was um, running the club. Uh, 
Juan Solar Cozar, um, as Charlie Strafford. He was the car player with a floral shirt, and he's, or was it him, or the, no, the other guy was um, uh, Alfredo Kier. Uh, uh, he was the uh, steel, the card player in the striped blazer. And he was the one that ran the club, and he had the cool, like, later on, you see him, he has, like, half his face painted in this weird fucking, like, metallic vein kind of a fucking thunder lightning fucking thing on his face. I love the way his his crew kind of jumped the main lead, and they did this ring, like, he had these kind of trans men, drag queens, and females just doing this ring around the road. Right, it was was really good, because he was, like, hard to tell. At first, you thought it was all women, and you seen closer, and it was like, oh, no, it's a mix, and it's like, yeah. Just doing this run around with him, and they start just fucking beating his ass for a minute. (laughs) Yeah, he's all, leave me alone, leave me alone. They're, like, circling him. He's all, you women, leave me alone, and then just start, like, throwing down punches on him and beating the shit out of him. Um, Speaking of, this film had a lot of good cheap action sequences there's a sequence early on where he almost tries to commit suicide on the train tracks with the woman that he's in love with that's going through him through the whole story and watching it as a filmmaker i can see how they film that as like franco just saw this train track and he just parked this whole little scene and then he shot the train like at another time either before or after the same day or whatever and then just shot him off that little thing and it was just a simple little scene of him thinking the train was going to hit him and he just pulled off the tracks. It was just so simple and, but it had a good action thing. It. Yeah, yeah, totally. Sure. Yeah. I totally punched the whole thing up. Just that one little sequence, um, was, was really cool. And then they, uh, also too, a lot of the <clears throat> basic things of just, uh, being chased and, and a lot of the fight scenes and there's a lot of tension and it's like, Oh, are they going to get killed or, you know, are they going to get away? And it was just really a lot of basic stuff. And also too, I talked about, we were watching it about how simple of an idea it is. Just you can basically be make a movie with a deck of cards and five people, and here's the story, and off you go. You know, it's yeah. such a simple thing. You got the, an interesting uh, group of suspects that you know who had the card that was to to hit him. Yeah, and then every every moment, every moment in the movie at that point seemed suspicious. Or yeah, anybody driving behind him, anybody that was you know. Oh, it's funny too. We mentioned like uh, in the beginning. Um, because there's a scene that we were, made me think of that in the beginning when he's there's a scene where he's trying to where he uh, <clears throat> where he tries to commit suicide and he has and he's overdosing and then he decides that he wants to live which is the theme for the whole movie of him thinking he wants to die and then he wants to live even when he's getting the overdose he tries to go for the phone and he's grabbing this fucking phone off the table and he pulls it down and it lands like inches from his head it's like a rotary phone yeah a hard <laughs> fucking phone I was like holy shit and then that landed by his head. And then later on, when he's walking on the dock, Jeff had laughed because uh, he had dropped his barrels, or somebody had dropped a barrel, and the barrel was like totally empty, so it really wouldn't hurt him that much. Yeah, there's a chance too that it could have just went upside down on him, and he just yeah. blinded for a minute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then he could have done like the cartoon thing where it landed on him. He ran around <laughs> in the circles, and they beat on the drum. You know, but yeah, it was just so funny. It's like all these things keep falling on his head. But yeah, but that foam was like almost a real fucking like wow. Yeah, was, yeah I feel like that wasn't planned. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, I'm sure he just grabbed that thing and didn't think it was going to come down. But hey, you got it on film and, and it looked really good and stuff. But uh, yeah, no, it. Um, yeah, so basically, uh, he basically plays a guy like he talked about going through his business and then he goes to a card game and uh, he ends up getting drunk and stuff. And then it was all set up of basically. He had given so basically the story is he he put out these five aces uh, ace of club ace of hearts ace of spades and uh, ace of diamonds 
and they all draw them and they write a thing on the back and the person who has the certain card is going to be the one that kills them and then the other people can kill the other person for that card and at the end of the certain amount of time frame if he's still alive then the money goes back to him but if the people that kills him has the card then they can collect the money and it's, it's a real basic idea and of course he changes his mind after yeah. You know, after the next yeah. morning, he goes to the the guy that we saw getting the rub down. Yeah. And then he made sure Papa to explain Yule. the entire rules for us so right. that we could actually really understand what's going on. Which I mentioned that to Jeff. <laughs> I said, that's one thing about these films is you have to establish the rules and explain them all out. And when you do that, then it's like almost like anything, almost like a Death Race 2000 or a or a or a uh, most dangerous game or something. Yeah, okay. for sure. You have 20 minutes ahead start, you know, at at 12 noon this starts and at 12 midnight it ends or you know you have to establish and here's the zones and here's the here's the thing if you get to this and this is a safe place and you have this weapon or even you know battle royale and they always you have to explain all the rules and the things and the more you do that as a creator and the more easy it is for people to follow along people will follow along if you give them the right tools to follow you know and uh, that's one thing I, I dug about that is that was a really good sequence you know yeah it definitely felt like at that point too. You're like, okay, the game's starting. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you, and then you want to see who's the person that has it, and you, and you did a lot of twists and turns in that. Um, but yeah, no, I liked this uh, film a lot because the couple films before this, he had kind of started cutting back on the nudity and stuff. And in this, uh, I liked that uh, you see like nudity like two minutes in the first film of the gal that was in Golden Temple Amazons uh, as the lead in that, and uh, she's pretty good as this. I, I called her a poor man's. Um, Isabella Ijani, uh, but she has like some cool style on this. She wears hats and stuff, and and he's like this like total Don Juan. He's got the good looking wife and this young girls all with him and stuff. So I, I like pretty funny. and the variety of it too. Because like aside from like the cuts with the 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 woman in the bathtub, that you know a lot of this full frontal yeah. stuff. But then you, but at the same time, he had that moment where he had that blurred object in the foreground. Oh yeah, and he was still kind of yeah. doing this sort of like burlesque tease about not barely seeing the nipples, or like you can and you know, and it's almost like it was constantly just yeah. you know behind this foreground thing, and it just I remember like. Prior to that, there was just all this shameless full frontal nudity, and then there's this moment with teasing with it, and yeah. it was it was it was interesting. It was no, I enjoyed that. That's a good point, yeah, because he had that very edge was all blurred, and and also too, it was cool that like his place was like he had the falling out with his wife, and she has all the money, and he's in this like single little place where his doors, and like a two had mentioned that he had uh, Franco shoots through bars a lot in this, uh, the bars in his room. Um, and of course, the bars that he drinks in it, no. But uh, <laughs> all the bars of the cage, he's always caged in. He's, he's yeah, trapped. Yeah, place, right? He yeah. Door. Yeah, the kind door of frame there had the bars there. Yeah. Shoots the bars walk in when he's in the blue hotel with her. All the bars shooting through and all the... You see a lot through this. And the lot. exotic angle, too. Yeah. Like the travel film type of thing. Like the... Oh, yeah, like yeah, I felt yeah. like I was touring this country, too. Yeah, like and like the racetrack had like camel races. So you've seen camel races yeah, going on. Yeah, like, I kind of felt like I was visiting... Yeah, yeah, yeah. This place. And he had all the snake charmers and the people in the town square that were all the people selling the trades and all the people at the marketplace and the dance routines. And even going into that guy's uh, card game, he had the naked woman dancing with the people and the music. Right. And had a very exotic. Yeah, the music, too. Not much jazz. It was a lot. No. Yeah, a little bit of jazz. Um, the book said none, but no, there's a little bit in there, but there's a lot of Arabic, kind of disco Arabic cool stuff and it but it, it 
it it fit the area and it made sense. You know, you would. Oh yeah, a little some. disco era moment. Oh yeah, the dance that the was club. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was so stupid. <laughs> that was funny. Um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, like I mentioned, it's funny too because his little apartment he has. Uh, it shows how cramped he is. Like he has just a single pull-out bed, not even a full pull-out bed, just a single cot kind of couch deal. And uh, and I like the scene too with her in the beginning. He gets up and he's trying to give her money, and she's like, no, "I don't want your money. It's fine. We had fun." Blah blah blah. And he's trying to pair off like she's a prostitute, but he knows he's going to die or commit suicide, so he just wants to give her some money. And then he gets up out of the bed, and, like knocks over that fucking tray thing, that oh, table yeah. spills <laughs> it all and shit. Fucking totally fucking dumbass, you know. Um, and then of course a f- phone falling on his head. Um, and uh, a Papa Yule was 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 funny. Um, let's see who else we want to talk about. Um, uh, Angel Ordalis, of course, is Ollie a gun seller. He's funny in this. He buys the cheap guns from him that doesn't work. Um, and then you had uh, Carlos Wendy. Um, that's funny. Okay, so that guy, so the guy that played Wendy Wendy Castling, the accountant for Julius Brewster, his first name is Carlos and his last name is Wendy. Or no, I'm sorry, Carlos Mindy. M E N D Y. played so, Wendy. Yeah, Carlos Mindy <laughs> played Wendy Castling. Well, it's funny, Carlos and Casling are similar, and Mindy and Wendy right. just kind of like switch, which is funny because that's like with this movie, people's names are kind of switched around and they're real people based on other people and the stories is based on other things and stuff so but uh, yeah no I would really recommend this film and, and I really wish Severin or, or Kino Orbor or Vincent or, or whoever puts it out because uh, uh, I got a DVD-R copy and it worked well it's kind of started freezing up a few places I was like oh shit you know but uh, it made it through alright and uh, yeah no it's, it's, it's a good film really good acting it's a mature film, and it's interesting that there's a male lead, which is really rare for a Franco film. Is always a female lead, um, and uh, like we talked about, a lot of it I feel is based on the stuff he was going through with his life, with his career, and just kind of overlooking everything you've done. Especially at this point, he's done shit 134 films, and this movie he, was personal. Yeah, yeah, and it's like by this time he really doesn't have a lot to show for it in his life. He's he's not a millionaire. He's he's still an independent fucking guerrilla filmmaker you know and you've been doing it for 20 30 years and you're like fuck dude you know and so i, I can identify me just doing it for only 15 years and, and seeing what he's doing and by this time and everything he's done so it's 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 really cool to see where you're kind of kind of doing a blink like, where's my thing. recognition man like, yeah he's doing this enough? and that and he's just like <laughs> fuck dude and and everybody above him you know and there's a thing where they like he talks about the people above him he's like well um two editors you know, you're just letters. And he goes, well, without letters, there's no numbers. So it's like, without my talent, there's no money. You know, it's like, yeah, well, letters and numbers, that's what everything's about. You know, letters write stories and numbers cash checks. So it's its kind of a cool little rule that he yeah. threw in there, his little philosophy and how everybody is and stuff. Um, and Jose Lamas is in a little bit. Um, uh, Antonio Mayans is in it just a little bit as Freddie. Uh, Lena only has just a brief cameo as a uh, fan, right? Yeah, as a fan yeah. uh, handing him an autograph, trying to get his autograph from the beginning, which is really funny. So it means that she probably worked uh, quite a bit behind the scenes on here. Um, I haven't done the other. Oh, yeah, actually, she was uh, assistant director on this. So that's why she wasn't in the camera that much. She was behind the camera working, which is good. When her and Jess work together behind the camera, they they knock out some good stuff and stuff. So yeah, I'm curious if um, if it's that case on any of the ones that with the editing, how 
like the fast paced editing. Yeah, I actually, I'm sick of this right now. Uh, wait, he brought that up. Um, editor on this. Uh, shit. Uh, director of screenplay, director of photography, camera operator, production manager, uh, assistant, makeup, uh, hair, wardrobe, assistant director, editor, Jess Franco and Lena Romay. Hmm. We also just edited it, yeah, because usually Jess does camera operator, director, writer, producer. Right. Uh, you know, he's about every, everything. Um, you know, so yeah, so yeah, so he edited it. So that's good. Yeah, no, the editing in this is really good. I'm glad you said that because uh, there's scenes, there's a great scene where he's, William Berger's with the woman and he's still thinking about his ex wife and then he's thinking about what he wants to do with that woman and you don't know what's reality yeah, and what's forwarding yeah. and backward and it jumps around a few times and it's really good editing in this film. A lot of cool jump cuts it to is. locations and Yeah, it has almost like little it's almost doing its own visual stories yeah. within the script. Yeah. One thing I didn't like though was the shooting the shooting the gun scenes with like no no sound no sound no <laughs> bullet no nothing no blood just just the guy going ah and then fall and he thought I maybe I wonder if he took a chance with that because he re- felt like he was playing a lot of that Schubert music and I wonder if yeah. he was really wanting to just highlight that and he didn't he thought that might he didn't want to take away from that almost like well also too if you think about it now that we know like that so it was a of. story that he's talking out. You don't right. have to really show the killing. Well, I mean, but you show her dying in the blood of her mouth. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? But yeah, I, I just maybe it's just a cheap way to do it. But but uh, yeah, no, it was, it was really good. I liked I liked a lot of locations and where we filmed and and uh, it was sexy and stuff. But it wasn't gratuitous and it wasn't you know just a bunch oh, of yeah, naked stuff. And you know, yeah. all, all all the nudity meant something. And it was it wasn't used, cheap. Right, right. Yeah. It meant, meant what it was used for. Um, let's see. All right, I'm going to go ahead and knock out the uh, Franco list and uh, see what... Actually, wasn't a lot on this film that knocked out the Franco list on there's this. a lot of no's on that list. Yeah, I know. A lot of... It's funny. As, <laughs> as we go through, there's quite a bit. Uh, number one, body of water. Yes, we see a couple body of waters on this. We got the pool. We got the oceans. We got the silhouette. The silhouette. Yeah, all that. Uh, number two, sailboat. Yeah, there's a big out boat yard. It, remember that boat yard? <laughs> we walked in. All those boats are parked. I was yeah, laughing. Just there's tons a lot of, of boats. out of the water. Yeah, uh, sailboat two, three boats. Yes, uh, four palm trees. Yeah, it opens up. The film opens up with the o- ocean and um, um, palm tree shot right in the beginning. Then palm trees all through. Uh, number five, jungle sound effects. No, but in the beginning we have uh, that uh, thunder and lightning sounds over that palm trees with no storm. It was kind of cool. Yeah, and know? I wonder too if like the whole exotic for his films, it almost feels like he was on vacation on this one. Yeah, and he yeah. was going someplace foreign and it yeah. had more of like, you know, more scenery of the desert area and, and all that. Yeah, yeah, I know. That definitely looked like a lot of the cool and a lot of it didn't look like it was stock or anything. It was like filmed around that same time frame. Um, number six, chained up person. No, nobody's chained up in this, held against their will, you know, in a room or anything. Uh, seven dance scenes on stage stripping. I'll say that goes for the lady that Belly was the dancing. stripper dancer. Yeah, because yeah. she's nude and, and and she's performing in front of people and they're you know playing going. Yeah, through. definitely. Uh, number eight club scenes in a dancing. Yeah, there's the the <laughs> disco, the cool fucking <laughs> yeah. Middle Eastern disco place. They're dancing to that song. Uh, number nine, jazz music. A little bit, um, not a lot. A little yeah, bit in here. The tempos, I suppose. Yeah, a couple. Yeah. I said, oh, there's no, and then they show like one or two songs. We were laughing. We're like, oh, there goes that. 
Uh, number ten, excessive zooms and eleven out of focus shots. Not too much. I didn't see him like zooming. Although in. you were kind of just like the uh, moments they kept showing with him with the reflective water in the window to go on his face. They kind of zoom in a little quick on those. That's a, true. A yeah. Few times. Yeah. A couple <laughs> times he he could have slowed. Good you call. Couldn't really. Yeah. Like, see what he was doing with that yeah because that goes with the mirror shot uh which is number 12 mirror shots yeah uh he's a lot of good mirror shots in this reflection of the beginning him looking through the window with the water running on it and i thought of in cold blood and we had talked about that first shot of like from the 40s i think a richard widmark film is that one that uses it it's yeah, I remember first, it was like, like definitely like that film noir era. Yeah, like, and, it had, it's and like they were talking about like he was talking about how you know his childhood. I remember the character and he was like in jail or something, and while he was talking about it, you could see like almost as if tears were running down his face. Yeah, yeah, and it's just the, the yeah, the, yeah the lightning and the and the and the rain on the window reflecting it back onto him. So it's like him showing all the regrets. Oh yeah, and, and that that beautiful day scene with the palm tree. Yet there was lightning. Oh yeah, thunder, yeah, yeah. Thunder roars. Yeah. Like, where's the thunder coming from? But but also too, that's more of like a mental thing. Like, oh, it looks beautiful, but there's really also, yeah, it's, some it's turmoil beautiful, going but on beneath the surface. This yeah. is what's really behind the thing, you know. Um, but yeah, but the, the mirror shots in this too, like I said, the reflection, a lot of reflection shots, a reflection of that, a lot of stuff with him and her in the bathroom window, mirrors all around. There was uh, a lot of reflection of, of him reflecting on where he's at in life. Yeah. A lot of that, him thinking into the mirrors. And, and so the reflection meant a lot in this film. Because that's what this film is, a film about reflection. Um, number 14, no, I'm sorry, number 13, a mind control theme. No, there's no really no mind control. There's no, I mean, he's obsessed with a thought, but I don't, I don't call obsession mind control. Uh, 14 magic tongue scenes no no lena so no magic tongue uh <laughs> number 15 red lights no no red lights uh number 16 green lights yeah it's true there's a lot of oh, green train lights. lights too that's true oh, actually yeah there might be a red light oh, that, that police lights yeah there you go uh, I, I took that back yeah no no club scene with the red light no prostitution thing but there is a few other lights that are red good call i think about that yeah the the fake cop car and the fake uh 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 train light deal um, which is funny because I have a portable stoplight that I use in my films and for photo shoots that you just plug in. That's a, an actual working stoplight with a red, yellow, green. So yeah. I was like, oh, I can use that that's shot in my film. Play, yeah, because yeah, it looked really good with her sitting in the car with that, out by the window, which I've shot pictures like that before with a gal. Um, and so, yeah, I can use that with that. Uh, yeah, uh, which I had mentioned too, like watching this, I had mentioned that, that train scene of, uh, a cheap effect of that, of setting up that thing to give that impression of a, of a expensive thing. And then you had talked about like, instead of having a bunch of cop cars, just have a two cars or whatever with like, it's just a blue light on top or shoot it at night. Silhouettes. Yeah. yeah and just it just gives the lights. impression and just have the and then just people with flashlights. flashlights. Yeah. I mean, you could, they, they might not, it's just an overdubbed, um, demand. Yeah, you don't even see figures, and no. it's just a you know, it's just solid. Right, black you can just have just two or three voices lines. just like, in the background, like give me that, yeah. give me that, give me that, you know, type thing. It was interesting. Uh, yeah. Visually. Uh, okay, and uh, so number was it uh, fifteen? Okay, sixteen. A sheepskin rug, no, and no masturbation with sea items in this. Uh, that's kind of ran its course. I don't think he's gonna be doing that anymore in these <laughs> films. Kind of ran its course. Yeah, that's kind of way back when. I yeah. I still leave on the. That's interesting. Note I wonder what was going on that, that was. Well, that was the Earl the Earl C. Kenton films. I mean, I mean the Earl C. Dietrich films. 
That's what the that's my my theory is that or else because uh, middle initial is, is C, so every film Franco was using a woman during the fifteen or seventeen films he made with him that um, Earl C. Dietrich, so he's using the C like cigar, a cane, a claw, a cigarette, hmm. cucumber, candles, like all the things right. with the C. It was funny. I was like, what the fuck? And then it was like, okay, now and it was like every movie, like. <laughs> now there's there has to be a theme like right. why is this every movie with a C? So yeah, that was that. But that's that's like ten years before this. I'm still fucking throwing it in. Uh, number seventeen, Mad Scientist and Servant. No, there's no Doctor Orloffs, no Doctor M's, no Doctor anything like that. Eighteen fish tank shots. No fish tank shots, but he uses this cool like globe kind of a crystal ball thing that shows his reflection yeah. looking at it. it was, Kind of gives that same effect where, type thing there. Yeah. Although you know, I feel like the um, the the large man getting in the massage, he kind of had a dominant nature to him, as if he was the mad scientist. And, yeah. Like it was Papa Yule. Game. He came to him to plead to like you know change it up, and he tried to help him, but still made sure to be bounded by the rules of the game. Like, yeah. You know, it was. He's like the fucking dungeon master. No. Yeah. <clears throat> That's funny. Uh, yeah, yeah, he could be. Could be something like that. He's kind of the guy that runs all the thing. Uh, 18, okay, uh, 19, talking parrot. No, no, no talking animals in this film. Uh, 20, in credits, yes or no. It says the fin, and it says uh, the, the uh, deposit legal number. Uh, 21, handwritten notes or cheesy signs. No, but Jeff had noticed that one of the car's license plates almost looked like a chalkboard that was like written. Yeah, it was the, like written chalkboard. Yeah, <laughs> it was like so, handwritten license. <laughs> so that might have been something that was like a, a like a rent a car or something that they just did a fake license plate thing with the chalk on it. That was funny. I'll check that out later. Uh, number twenty two spiral staircase shots. No, I didn't catch any of those in the places. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, twenty three inept cops. Not really. Not inept because they they were there and they followed up and and they arrested the people and stuff. Um, but they were just there at the very end to like wrap it up. They didn't do any investigative work. I don't think, or unless they were doing it behind the scenes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, it's funny that in all Franco movies, cops really don't mean a lot. And even in this one, the story of the guy's writing the cops really don't mean yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Um, 24 belly chains, no belly chains. on. Uh, although I don't think the belly dancer was well on her belly chain. She had that bottom. One. I think she had just a bare midriff. Um, number 25 kinks. And that's not really much of a sexual film. So there's no like whipping or no, no feet stuff. Or nothing yeah. Craziness. Longing for his wife. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 26 great headboards. No, pretty standard. Uh, 27 fear or desire. I'd say maybe desire. I feel like it had, it was a both. Yeah. I mean, there's fear because he's, because he's been worried about the people killing him, but then the desire of the people to, I mean, all those flashbacks were desire. That's true. Yeah. Like, you know, killing himself. Yeah. Yeah. And the fear of time. And yeah. So yeah, I'd say, yeah, I see desires. I wanted to like, get out of the game he got himself into but it's good there's like both elements in there some films have neither we're like well there's no fear or desire in this but it's here it's a little bit more desire but still has the fear element as, as well in it too so that's cool uh, 28 acoustic guitar player not acoustic guitar but kind of. playing a, a sitar that kind of a weird looking but that has something to do with more the yeah. exotic trip you're taking in this film I feel but like. I would say that's a the acoustic acoustic yeah, yeah. if it was in an American place a guy would be sitting there strumming an acoustic guitar right. and here it's the same trip um, 29, reading a book scene. Yeah, he has these books that he, because he's an author and he sets out his books in that scene before he tries to commit suicide. That's the biggest one. 
and finding number 30 pee scene. No, there's no uh, going to the bathroom. Oh, man, if I had to pee throughout this whole thing. Oh, did you really? You mentioned that. That's funny. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, uh, I'm going to end this um, episode on a different way. I'm going to do a quick uh, improv uh, thing with you real fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wrote this quick thing uh, that I had a funny idea. Uh, while I was watching a movie and I thought of something. So I'm going to play the character of Will and you're going to play the theater manager. Theater Theater manager. You're a theater manager sitting in your office and I'm a customer that's getting ready to complain, okay? All right. And action. Come in. Hi. uh, I want to get my money back from this movie. Uh, Okay, what's the problem? Uh, It's false advertising. Uh, I'm sorry, what was the advertisement you've seen? I saw American Graffiti, and there's no graffiti in American Graffiti. There's no spray painting. There's no graffiti at all in the movie. That's one thing I noticed is American Graffiti. There's no graffiti. Wait, wait Will, who's this friend you brought in? <laughs> no, and cut. No, I, 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 I wanted to repeat it. Will walking into a theater and complaining that there's no graffiti in American Graffiti. So, That's interesting. They yeah. thought it was going to be like Style Wars or something, just something about like New York culture of the 80s. Yeah, and because like, like, I never thought about the title, and I started thinking about, hey, there's no graffiti in my graffiti, and I started laughing, and then I thought, well, maybe the graffiti is the pop music. The music, that's what I And assume. music is yeah. the American graffiti of its time, but nobody ever brings that up of like, right. they just go American graffiti, and blah, blah, they don't really think about what it <laughs> means, you know. No, that's true. Yeah, I think when you're rich, I always, I always assumed it was like that because the, the music was constantly. Everyone's listening to the same station, so like it was just literally. Yeah, and it's graffiti out of the like landscape. It, you know, that shit was littering the your town. Like, yeah, you know, like every night these kids are out there graffitiing with these this music everywhere. You know. Yeah, but if you read the title, graffiti, you think it's like kids out spray painting well, the town, yeah. or, or yeah, like, or like. The Warriors or something where right. they just tag and shit. Coney and stuff. Island stuff. Nobody tags in American graffiti, you know. But I was laughing because I saw an ad and somebody had done a graffiti. Well, maybe the, the Pharaohs did. We just they just cut those. Yeah, exactly. Out, you know? Well, they were still they were still money out of the, out of the fucking games and shit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but uh, no, I was laughing because they had an article um, real into graffiti, and I thought, oh, that's a cheap version of American graffiti. There's not American graffiti. It's real into graffiti. Oh man, was this your next movie? <laughs> yeah, so I started writing actually. <laughs> like, yeah, so I was like, oh. Real into graffiti, and I thought because it was somebody tagging a thing at the school, and I was like, oh, okay, interesting. And I thought, oh, what you about can play graffiti? the trouble kids too. I don't know if you remember in the uh, the local times around here, and they had like the uh, nails and the sh- the little tread tire treads they were leaving out on the. the oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were like getting more traffic through here. Yeah, that's, that's that, right. That's the take for the pharaohs around here. Right? <laughs> the dry creek critters. <laughs> yeah, I have this tire <laughs> shop that could fix your tire for. Right. Wow, imagine that. You know. But yeah, so no, I just laugh about the American Graffiti has no graffiti in it. So next time you watch American Graffiti, think about there's no graffiti in American Graffiti. Or if you do, find a scene where it happens. So, All right, well, I wanted to get that out of my system. So thank you, Jeff, for acting that out oh, for Oh, of me. course. Thanks for making me a manager, finally. Yeah, now you're the manager at the theater. Well, I figured you'd be a good uh, movie theater manager, so, you know. So, All right, well, that was uh, Desperate Vision's Playhouse, the uh, Will going in to complain about the... I like how the, uh, how a guy goes into a theater complaining about a film that was made like back in the seventies. That's another one of my jokes too, which is dumb. So, all right, well, there's that. So. <laughs> all right, Jeff, thank you for joining me. Yeah, yeah appreciate it. All right, talk to you soon. Thank uh, you. Thank adios, you. amigo.